Romans chapter 2, beginning there in verse number 6. On last week, we looked at the first part of this chapter in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. We're in the middle of chapter 2, and it's a little bit tricky. Because if you take the middle of chapter 2 by itself, you might get the impression that it actually teaches or communicates something that contradicts what comes later in Paul's teaching. So it's very important that we grapple with this within its proper context. So, look with me if you will. Romans chapter 2, beginning at verse 6. And it reads, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, for their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And here's what's interesting. This whole section that we're looking at is dealing with this issue of justification by faith. And right here, right smack dab in the middle of it, Paul says in no uncertain terms that God will render to each according to his works. Not God will render to each according to his faith. But God will render to each according to his works. And as we read it in the second paragraph, it almost seems as though he's alluding to the possibility, at least, of those who do not have the law being justified by responding to and obeying whatever light they do have. That is why it is very important for us to be careful as we walk through this particular passage of Scripture, right in the middle of this section. Again, remember this section goes from Romans 1.18 all the way to Romans 3.20. That's the section we're in the midst of, justification by faith alone, but demonstrating the sin 
of all men. So it almost looks as though we're talking about justification by faith, but judgment by works. There's no almost to it. That is what we're talking about. Justification by faith, but judgment by works. Well, what, what does that look like? Judgment by works. Doesn't seem right, does it? Because, I mean, we've, we've heard all, we've heard, no, 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 basically the only issue is what you've done with Christ. There will be those who've come to faith in Christ and those who have not come to faith in Christ. And the only question that God will have is, did you come to faith in Christ? There, that's it. End of discussion. Um, no. He will render to each according to his works. By the way, this is not a novel concept. I want you to look at these passages of Scripture. I didn't put the Scriptures up on the slides because I want you to look in your Bible. All right. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Interestingly enough, we just finished with Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 11 and verse 9. What do we find there? So, if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. Is that what I was looking for? Ah, that's the wrong voice. The, the wrong verse. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Chapter 12 and verse 4. There we read, And the doers, oh, excuse me, and the doors on the streets are shut when the sound of the grinding is low. And one rises up at the sound of a bird. And I, I'm sorry, 1214. That's what I get for bringing this Bible with this small print up here. 1214. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Go to John. John chapter 5. Maybe that was just a fluke. Maybe it's just kind of an Old Testament thing, right? John chapter 5, 28 through 29. Let's see if I can find that one. John 5, 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Second Corinthians chapter 5. And verse number 10. 
For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Galatians chapter 6. Look at verses 7 and 8. Seven through nine. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Go to Ephesians, next book over. Chapter 6, verse 8. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord whether he is a slave or free. Now go to the last book in the Bible. Revelation. First chapter 2. And verse 23. It reads, and I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you as your works deserve. Now go to chapter 20. Chapter 20. Beginning at verse 12. And there we read, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. According to what they had done. So again, this idea is not novel. The idea that we will be judged according to our works is not a novel concept. You will stand before God. And as you stand before God, you will face God the judge. And God the judge will open the books. And you will give an account. Now... Paul goes to great lengths to make his point clear. Lest you think that this is somehow just based on a misunderstanding or just a sort of cursory reading here. Lest you think that somehow there's a way that we need to look at this particular paragraph, especially this first paragraph, and see it differently than what it looks like at first glance. 
And in fact, we do need to see it differently than what it looks like at first glance. We're going to read this twice. The first time we read this, we're just going to read it cursory glance. Then I'm going to show you what Paul did. Beginning at verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Now, cursory reading doesn't pick this up. But what Paul does here is he forms a chiastic structure, as it's referred to in the Greek language. Chiasm. It forms like a cross. It is a very specific, very particular kind of structure meant to communicate something. What I want to do is show you this chiasm. And you'll see it as we look at this outline. Again, this is the verse... As it's printed. All I'm doing is showing you Paul's structure. A. He will render to each one according to his works. That's the first part of the verse. B. To those who by patience and well-doing seek glory and honor and immortality, he identifies a group of people. Right? So first he says, here's God the impartial judge. Secondly, here's a group of people. This is a group of people who, by patience and well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality. See, he shows what that group of people is going to get. He will give eternal life. D, he introduces another group of people. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, you notice this is another group of people. After he introduces a group of people, he says, here's what they're going to get. There will be wrath and fury. Now here's what Paul does, and here's the chiastic structure. In case you didn't get it the first time, he's going to give it to you again, but backwards. Watch this. E, just like the E before it, there will be tribulation and distress. Well, if we're going backwards, after E comes what? D, for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. Do you notice that that D is the same group of people in the other D? Well, if we're going backwards, after D comes... C. Well, C says he will give eternal life here, but glory and honor and peace. After C comes B. In the first B, what's the group of people? To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. What's the second B? For everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. A, we have God as an impartial judge. What's the next A? For God shows no partiality. You don't get that from a cursory reading. But that is as clear a chiasm as you will find anywhere in the New Testament. And it is a literary device designed to make a point and make it clearly and powerfully. There's two groups of individuals. First, there's God who's sovereign over all and he is the impartial judge. And God is looking upon two groups of individuals. The first group of individuals, those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. They're defined again later as everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. The second group of individuals, 
Those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. And then they're defined again, every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. There are the two groups of individuals. And there's two things that they receive. That first group, they're in the green. He will give eternal life. In the second instance, glory and honor and peace. To the second group, both of them there in the blue, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress. And these are based on what? Their deeds. Their works. The way they live their lives. Yeah, but I walk to the aisle and I pray to prayer. Your deeds. Your works. The way you lived your life. Yeah, yeah, but I was raised in a Christian home. Your deeds, your works, the way you lived your life. Yeah, but I went to church. Your deeds, your works, the way you lived your life. So, again, Paul goes to great lengths to make this point. Not only there, but in the beginning of the next paragraph. Look beginning verse 12. For all, all those who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Can you be clearer than that? The doers of the law are the ones who will be justified. But wait a minute. I thought we were talking about justification by faith apart from works. We are. But that's not what that sounds like. I mean, it's really not. Here's the third thing we have to understand. Paul must be understood first in his immediate context. What does that look like? Here we go. First, Romans 1, 18 to 320. We're talking about the need for justification by faith. That's this whole big section that we're looking at. The need for justification by faith. Man's guilt, man's unrighteousness, pointing to the fact that man has to be justified by faith. There is no alternative other than man being justified by faith. Secondly, 118 and following, that we just got through with a few weeks ago, is about the guilt of the Gentile world based on General revelation. You remember that? Man is guilty because God has revealed himself and man has ignored the revelation of God and has chosen something other than God and God's glory. Which, by the way, is what this is all about. God and his glory. And man, because he has chosen something else, the Gentile world, the world outside of the particular Law of God or special revelation of God is guilty. He is without excuse, Paul says, because he's not even being obedient to the revelation that he has. Remember, he's already said that. If you forget that he's already said that, you won't understand what he's saying here. Thirdly, Romans chapter 2 and following. This whole chapter is about the guilt of the Jewish world. The guilt of the Jewish world. We've got to grasp that. 
Paul's making a statement here about the Jews and their guilt. That's the crescendo in chapter 2. Not only are the Gentiles guilty, but you Jews are also guilty. You can nod and say, yes, they're guilty because they're out there outside of the camp. They're out there, out there outside of the law. We've got the law. They don't have the law. We have the rituals. They don't have the rituals. We have the holy days. They don't have the holy days. We have the holy feasts. They don't have the holy feasts. We have the lineage. They don't have the lineage. It's easy to see that they are in trouble. Paul's point here in chapter 2 is that not only are they in trouble, but even those on the inside are in trouble as well. We have to understand that in order to get his point. Now, particularly, Romans 2, 6 through 16, is about the nature of lawlessness. That's what this section is about. The nature of lawlessness. And the key there is in a couple of places. Number one, the crux of it is verse 13. Look first at verse 12. All who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Okay? Makes sense, right? You sinned, but you didn't have the law. That's okay. You had general revelation. That's enough for you to not have an excuse. You perish without the law. We've already seen that in the first part. But this is the link that he's making. The next part of that... And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. There he just turned the corner. You get it how those people outside the law are going to be judged without the law. That's fine. But here's what you also need to know. Those who have the law are going to be judged under the law. You're going to be judged by what you've received. They're going to be judged by the light they've received. You're going to be judged by the light you've received. They've sinned. And God is going to judge them because they've sinned. He's not going to judge them because they didn't get what you got. He's going to judge them because they've sinned. But God is also going to judge you, Israel, because you've sinned. The difference being, you have the law. So he can get very particular with you. But we also see in verse 7. Note the verb there in verse 7. Go back to verse 7. Verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. Verse 7. To those who, by patience in well-doing, seek. It's the verb there. Seek. For those who, by patience in well-doing, seek. Seek what? For glory and honor and immortality. Those who, by patience in well-doing, seek. It's not just what they do, it's the motivation for what they do. By the way, it's the same for the other. You look in verse 8, and what does he say? But those who are... Self-seeking. One is seeking something outside of self. The other one is seeking self. So the distinction is not just in the behavior, but it's also in the motivation for the behavior. This is incredibly important for when we get to chapter 3. See, it looks like here, 
what Paul is doing is he's setting up an instance where he says, here are some righteous people, here are some unrighteous people. Here are some righteous people who didn't even have the law. Here are some righteous people who did have the law. That's not Paul's point at all here. And it's only when we understand the broader context that we get his point. There's a finer point. Listen to this from John Wolver. Verse 14 is introduced by Hotan, meaning whenever. Paul is not saying that what follows is true or that it occurs, but he's saying that to the extent that this is the case, the conclusion he reaches is true. To the extent the Gentiles should actually accomplish the fulfillment of the law, they have a standard of their own. This is incredibly important. Paul's not saying, you know those Gentiles who don't have the law, but they keep the law anyway? To a degree that they would be justified before God because they kept the law perfectly? No, 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 no. It's not his point. We'll recognize that later on, especially when we get to chapter 3. That cannot be his point. But the word that he uses here in the Greek points to the fact that he is speaking hypothetically. Look at what he says in verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. In other words, we talked about general revelation. And how just based on general revelation, there is a sense in every culture of what is right and what is wrong. Here's what Paul says. When the Gentile does something... Because the general revelation of God has revealed to him and his conscience that it's right to do or wrong not to do. Then he is a law unto himself. In other words, what he has just done is he has just done something that is appropriate, even though he didn't have the special revelation of God to say to him that it's appropriate. By the way, we know that Paul's not making the argument that this justifies the man. How do we know that? Because chapter 1, verse 18 and following. And because of chapter 3. There is none who does good. There is none who seeks after God. There is none who is right. Not, no, not even one. Nobody. Not a single solitary human being. So he says here something theoretical in order to make a point to the Jews. And what's the point he's making to the Jews? It's not just the hearers of the law who are righteous, but the ones who do it. In other words, you, oh Jewish person who's listening to me, who has the law, who think that you are better off than the Gentile because you have the law, newsflash, having the law is not enough. You have to do it. And you have to do it all. James chapter 2 and verse 10. If anyone keeps the whole law but stumbles at one point, he is guilty of all of it. You see, he's turning the dagger here. He's got them nodding their heads about the Gentiles. He goes, yeah, man, that chapter one stuff, those Gentiles, they are. They got all those false gods and all that. They look at the general revelation and they don't get it. Not only do they not get it, they don't even have the law. We got the law. They don't have the law. They don't even have the Ten Commandments. We got the Ten Commandments. Plus, we got a whole bunch of other laws that we wrote around the Ten Commandments. They don't keep the Ten Commandments. They certainly don't keep those other laws. They don't do the sacrifices. They got no hope. Yeah, Paul, they're in trouble. Amen, brother. Preach it. You know, by the way, God's going to judge them by their deeds. That's right. He's going to judge them by their deeds. 
You, you know God's going to judge everybody by their deeds. That's right. God's going to judge everybody by their deeds. Yeah, everybody. Those who don't have the law, he's going to judge them by their deeds. And they're accountable for the light that they've received. And that's okay because it's enough for them to be guilty. Those who have the law, he's going to judge you by your deeds as well. Yeah, but see, how about if... How about if my judgment is based on the fact that I'm connected to Abraham? Oh, uh, no, sorry, can't do that. Okay, well, how about, how about, how about, cause, cause that one time I brought a goat and for the priest to sacrifice it for me. Um, how about, no. How about because I'm way better than any Gentile I know? Um, how about no? How about because I do good most of the times? Uh, how about no? You're a sinner. You violated the law of God, plain and simple. And you're going to stand before God. And you're going to be judged. Here's the other thing that you and I need to know. Because we hear this a lot and we say this a lot. It is all about what you've done with Christ. But know this. This, by the way, is why we have a problem with people who haven't heard the gospel, for example. You know, you ever had that conversation with someone? And they go, yeah, well, what about the person who lives in the deepest, darkest jungle in South America? And they just never heard. Uh, they're going to be judged by their deeds because their deeds are evil. They don't have to be judged on what they haven't heard. They can be judged on what they have. The heavens declare the glory of God, and they chose to worship the creature rather than the creator. That's enough. That's not enough for them to be saved. Hence, that's why we take the gospel to the four corners of the earth. Amen? But it's more than enough for them to be judged. And rightly so. Rightly so. So, not only do we have to understand him in his immediate context, but we've got to understand him in the broader theological context as well. We've got to understand theologically the juxtaposition of faith and works. We have to. If we don't, we'll have a skewed view of justification. So, here it is. The Romans-James controversy. Remember Martin Luther called the book of James a right strawy epistle. He didn't even think it belonged in the canon. He was so enamored with what Paul was teaching in Romans about justification by faith... That when he looks over there in James, and James says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works, Luther's going, I, I can't stand you, James. <laughs> James says, faith without works is dead. Luther says, you haven't read Paul. Um, Paul says the same thing. And our paragraph here is an example of Paul saying the same thing. Listen to what James says. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? 
God said as much. He looks at what he does and he knows that Abraham believes. Why? Because he followed through. James 2.24. You see that the person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Boy, that just sounds like it cuts right across the grain of everything the reformers stood for, does it not? Sola fide. Faith alone. Compare, for example, Romans 3, 27 through 4, 5. Look there, if you will. Beginning at Romans 3, 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jew only? Is he not the God of the Gentile also? Yes, the Gentile also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to, to, the, uh, to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trust him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Sounds like a contradiction there, does it not? Paul and works. Grab this. Paul taught against antinomianism. Antinomianism, lawlessness. We're not accountable for the way that we live. Paul taught against this. Look at Romans chapter 5 and verse 20. And then go through 6-2. Now the law came to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Paul also answered charges of antinomianism. Look at chapter 3 and verse 8. And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Paul's answering a charge there. Some people are saying that we just believe in this, you know, justification by faith alone. And that means why not just go ahead and do more evil so that there's more grace? He says that's slanderous. That is not what he teaches. 
It is slanderous to argue that Paul teaches that your works have absolutely nothing to do with anything. They don't have to do with your justification, but they're important. Paul also connected faith and works in his writing. Most famously, in Ephesians 2, go to Ephesians 2. Eight through ten. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. Don't stop too soon, though. Verse ten. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Go over to the next, previous book, rather. Look at Galatians chapter 5. And look at verse 6 and then at verse 13. Verse 6 is the crux of the matter. For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Did you catch that? Circumcision doesn't count for anything. Uncircumcision doesn't count for anything. The only thing that matters is faith working through love. Verse 13. For you were called the freedom brothers... Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Not only this, but Paul attributes these works to God's grace. Philippians 2, to the right. Twelve and thirteen are two verses I'm so happy appear together. Look at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The next verse. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Who's the source of the good works? God. 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 In other words, listen to this from Tom Schreiner. It seems to me that Romans 2, 28 to 29 reveals that Paul has in mind the good works that are done by the power of the Spirit. He's commenting on this very passage, our passage today. The new covenant work of the Spirit produces good works in believers' lives. And those who do such good works will receive eternal life. No contradiction exists with 320, because Paul there excludes good works as a basis for righteousness. But in Romans 2, he says that one will receive eternal life according to one's good works. The distinction is an important one. For earning or meriting eternal life is excluded. But Paul teaches that one must be changed in order to receive eternal life on the last day.
John Piper puts an even finer point on it. And this distinction. For Paul, justification by works, which he rejects, means gaining right standing with God by the merit of works. For James, justification by works, which he accepts, means maintaining a right standing with God by faith, along with the necessary evidence of faith, namely, the works of love. To put it yet another way, when Paul teaches in Romans 4, 5, that we are justified by faith alone, he means that the only thing that unites us to Christ is for righteousness is dependence on Christ. When James says in 2.24 that we are not justified by faith alone, he means that the faith which justifies does not, does not remain alone. These two positions are not contradictory. Faith alone unites us to Christ for righteousness, and the faith that unites us to Christ for righteousness does not remain alone. It bears the fruit of love. It must do so, or it is dead, demon, useless faith which does not justify. It's evidence. We are united with Christ. Do we believe in the doctrine of justification? Yes, we're declared righteous. Excellent. What's the step after justification? Careful now, because most people will say the step after justification is sanctification. You missed a step. There's justification, then there's adoption, and then sanctification. Adoption brings us into the family of God in Christ. How can I say that I have been united with Christ in His death? How can I say that I have been adopted by Christ, justified by Christ, and being sanctified by Christ, but my works don't bear me out? I can't. I can't. Do my works save me? They cannot. But does His work that saves me produce something in me? Absolutely. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. New things have come. Listen to our confession of faith on this. The Second London Baptist Confession puts this together for us. By this faith, so Article 14 on saving faith. By this faith, a Christian believeth to be true whatsoever is revealed in the Word, for the authority of God Himself, and also apprehendeth an excellency therein, above all other writings and all things in the world, as it bears forth the glory of God in His attributes, the excellency of Christ in His nature and offices, and the power and fullness of the Holy Spirit in His workings and operations, and so is enabled to cast his soul upon the truth thus believed, and also acteth differently upon that which each particular passage thereof containeth, yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. This is what saving faith does. It brings us to a place where we have a desire to yield obedience to the commands of Scripture. But the principal acts of saving faith have immediate relation to Christ, accepting, receiving, and resting upon Him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. I'll read something for you that we've read not long ago. Go to Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. 
Begin there at verse 15. Beware false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by whether or not they've walked an aisle and prayed a prayer. No, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So, how do we know false prophets? By their fruits. Next paragraph. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out many demons and... Do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. How do we know false professors? By their fruit. Last paragraph. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew. And beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Based on what? Hearing my words and doing them. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on a sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Based on what? Hearing his words and not doing it. Our obedience matters. Listen to this from Charles F. H. Henry. Scripture does indeed speak of God making sinners righteous, but it uses other terms than justification. For example, sanctification, adoption, heirship, to depict this activity. Justification, by contrast, is God's remittance of the sinners, of the sins of the guilty and freely accounting them righteous by grace on the ground solely of Christ's law keeping in our behalf instead. Are one's character and works then wholly irrelevant? By no means. Good works are evidence of having received justification by faith. They attest the presence of true faith. Finally, 1 John 2, 5 and 6. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. You see, one of the dangers in coming to grips with the doctrine of justification by faith alone is that we come to a place where we actually believe that our life doesn't matter. Your life absolutely matters. 
By the way, does this mean that we believe in sinless perfection? Uh, no. John makes that clear in 1 John chapter 1. If you say you have no sin, you're a liar. The truth is not in you. No, we don't believe in sinless perfection. But here's what we know. There is a balance in the New Testament. We understand that we are united with Christ. Who is Christ? Christ is the God-man who wrapped himself in flesh, who kept the whole law on behalf of his people, not so that his people could then go and live like heathens but so that His people could be united to Him. And because we're united with Him, we then have the power to overcome and live the life to which we're called. Only because we're in Christ. It is Him who works in us to will and to work for His good pleasure. The evidence that I belong to Christ is that I desire the things of God. And by His power, am able to overcome sin in my life. Completely and immediately? Uh, not so much. But progressively? Yes. And my attitude towards sin is completely transformed when I'm united to Christ. How can I know who Christ is? How can I know what Christ has done? How can I know the price that Christ has paid and then be flippant about the very things in my life that nailed him to the cross. How could I? The answer is, I can't. There's no way in the world that I could. I could never have that attitude towards sin and be united with Christ. And so, I work out my salvation with fear and trembling. Because I see those things in me that do not reflect the character of Christ. But here's what I know. It is Him who works in me, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And so I am grateful for victories, both great and small. And I anticipate those victories, both great and small. I'm not passive. I'm not sitting idly by. Oh, well, if Jesus wanted me to overcome this, I guess it would just be... No! He works in us to will and to work for His good pleasure. That is God. We strive for it. And that is God. We overcome, and that is God. We grow in grace, and that is God. So the Christian faith could not and would not ever look like the person who says, yeah, I still live in this sin, I still wallow in this sin, but thanks be to God, Jesus paid for it, so I'm all good. That's not the Christian life. Here's the good news. Go back to our passage. 
He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. By the way, what does that describe? The Christian life. Patience and well-doing. Knowing all the while it is him who works in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. But through patience and well-doing, we are seeking for this glory and seeking for this immortality. This is what we live for. This is what we strive for. And we are patient in well-doing in this process. Are we perfect in well-doing? No, we are not perfect in (laughs) well-doing. But patient in well-doing. Enduring in this thing. And it is what Christ does in us. The good news is, we will stand before God and we will be judged based upon our deeds. But our life will be hidden in Christ. And the deeds that we have done, though imperfect, will have been empowered by the presence of Christ and the Spirit of God in our lives. And will be deemed acceptable to God because of the imputed righteousness of the one who lived this life perfectly. The other option is the one who's self-seeking. For whom everything that they do and everything that they are is defined by their own desires, their own wishes, and their own pleasure and not that of Christ. And they will receive wrath. And not just because of a decision they didn't make, but because of their sin. That's why. Because they disobey even the light they receive. Little though it may be. It is enough to condemn. So understand, Paul's on a mission here. We're going to get to chapter 3. And this section here by no means exists for us to stand and measure ourselves against other people to see how we come out in the wash. This is actually a setup for when we get to chapter 3. Let's just read what we're going to run into there. For any of those who would look here and see this and talk about the Gentile being a law unto himself and somehow believe that that holds open the door, that there are some in the Gentile world who are going to be justified because they've kept what Every law they've received from God's general revelation, newsflash. Chapter 3, beginning of verse 9. What then? Are the Jews any better off? No, not at all. For all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become 
worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Here's what's interesting. Back in verse 7. Those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. And in that second part, verse 10, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. Notice that those words are present in chapter 3. No one seeks for God. There's nobody who's seeking that glory and that immortality. No one does good. Right there from our passage today, no one does good. Paul talks theoretically about the person who does good, and then he says later on, by the way, that's nobody. Not even one. Not even you. So, who gets in that first category? Only those who are found in Christ. That's the only way to that first category. To be found in Christ. So, if you are here trusting in anything other than Christ and His finished work, then know that you're outside of the camp. But here's the other side of the coin. If you say that you are trusting in Christ and His finished work, and yet continue to walk in sin, continue to wallow in sin, do not hate sin, do not forsake sin, do not seek after righteousness, my question to you is, what evidence is there that you're in Christ? Because you walked an aisle? Because you prayed a prayer? Because you know people who sin more than you do? Is that the best you got? I hope not. Because <laughs> that's not good enough. The answer is that we are found in Him. Would you bow with me? Father, as we bow, we recognize our great need. That we are in desperate need of Christ and His work on our behalf. And that nothing that we do 
is an acceptable substitute for him and his finished work. And so we come to you empty-handed, pleading, For the forgiveness that can only be found in Christ. But we also come to you, Father, rejoicing for the evidences that you, by your grace, show us and give us glimpses of in our own life as you work in us, both to will and to work for your good pleasure. As you cause us to hate sin and to flee from it. As you, by your mercy, transform our character and conform us to the very image of Christ. As you produce in us deeds that we could not or would not accomplish in and of ourselves. And this, not that we might boast but that we might rejoice that in your kindness you're sanctifying us. Father, I pray for the one under the sound of my voice who desperately needs to come to you in repentance and faith, trusting in Christ and His finished work alone. Would you by your grace Call that one. Convict that one. Would you have mercy in this place? And for those who have tried again and again and again to do better and to be better in and of themselves, only to fail time after time, would you by your kindness Allow them to see their desperate need to flee to Christ and Him alone for their justification. For that believer in this room today who struggles, Lord, with somehow never being satisfied that their level of sanctification is sufficient to indicate that they've been saved, would you, by your grace, crush pride, if that's what it is, and clear up ignorance, if that's what it is, Silence the false teaching of the adversary, if that's what it is. So that your people may rejoice in your truth and in your salvation. Grateful to you for what you have done. While also recognizing that we're not finished. 
these things we ask, we plead, we beg in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.